You, right now, have the opportunity to see and to know and to experience the living God of the universe and be reconciled to Him. Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today, we continue in our series called Perfect Power in Our Weakness. Pastor, your message today is called Life Together in the Gospel. If I remember correctly, Paul talks about greeting each other with a holy kiss here. Am I remembering correctly? You are remembering correctly, yeah. Okay, so people often will take these kind of things sometimes, by the way, and make them weird, right? You hear stories every now and again of groups of people that exercise specific expressions of culture that are mentioned in the Bible and take them into today. And you can only imagine what it would be like if you went to your church on Sunday and there was somebody waiting there to kiss your wife with the holy kiss. That might feel a little bit different. But there's other appropriate forms of familial greeting that we express now. So I can give you a hug and be okay. Let's get right to our message. Here's Dr. Nick Gatsky with part one. It's called Life Together in the Gospel. Final words matter. The last words in any situation present an opportunity to leave an impression. And that impression can be good or bad. It could be awkward or resolved. It could be weak or it could be powerful. The final words in a conversation in an email, in a letter, matter. These words are often referred to as a valediction or a complimentary closing. And I can think of plenty of times throughout life where those final words left something less than desirable with you. Think of plenty of awkward interactions. Maybe this has happened to you. Uh, Talking on the phone one time to a person for the very first time, somebody I didn't know, and they close the conversation in a way that they would close the conversation as if they were talking to their mother. <laughs> Something like, oh yeah, great to talk to you today. I love you. Bye. And then after an awkward silence and a stutter and an attempt at a course correction, the conversation ends. And it certainly leaves an impression. <laughs> Regularly, our valedictions are polite or possibly casual in their nature. Think about signing the end of an email or a letter. Most sincerely, Nick, whether I'm sincere or not, or yours truly, and I'm not yours and I may or may not be true, but yours truly, Nick. Sometimes, sometimes those parting words need to be very intentional and very specific. If you've been quarreling with your spouse all morning and that afternoon you're leaving for a business trip, you better make the last words count because you don't want to leave the impression that you're happy with your relationship to live in a state of tension for a whole week while you are away. And in that moment, casual speech will not do. The final words are important. The final words in Paul's letter called 2 Corinthians, needed to count. They needed to land in a certain way. This letter was serious and the church was divided. Some had chosen sides with the apostle Paul. Some had chosen sides against him. Some have believed in and were even propagating a false gospel. 
Some of them were still in the church. Others of them had been expelled. And there were plenty of well-meaning people who were caught in the middle of this church family. How is a church like this going to heal? What would be the catalyst for their unity? How were they to treat each other considering the immense amount of hurt that had occurred? Where did their faith in the Lord Jesus contribute to a way forward? These final words, this valediction was an opportunity to tie together all of the themes of this letter and mere politeness was not enough. A casual closing would not do. Their unity around the gospel was at stake and the final words had to count. And as we see these final words in the close of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we read in verses 11 through 14, a tone that might be surprisingly optimistic despite the seriousness of the letter. Listen to it as I read it. 2 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 11, it says this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul concludes this letter with five commands of conduct to the Corinthian church and then a closing benediction. And it's worthy to note that in these last few verses, he begins this conclusion with the phrase, finally, brothers, brothers. He's not talking about or to the people who have believed in an alternate gospel. He is not referencing the fake or the super apostles as they were called earlier in the book. He's talking to and talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord. Those who are living in the tension of conflict and are now trying to figure out how to proceed together in faithfulness to Jesus. And he gives them some commands of how to do that. And to understand how these five commands all sort of come together and how they're even possible, it's important that you understand the threads that have been underlying the book all the way through. And so what I want to try to do in the next couple minutes together is to show us how these five commands are really rooted in what Paul has been saying all along. And we'll bring in some of the verses from previous parts of 2 Corinthians, this book that we've now been studying for many, many months, passages we've forgotten months ago, and to see how Paul ties together all of these wonderful gospel themes in these commands for the church. And to do that, we have to begin with the theme of this book of 2 Corinthians. And the theme is very simply this, that there's one true gospel and God's perfect power is displayed through that gospel, even in the midst of our incredible weakness. That God displays his power in the midst of our weakness and it's through the gospel. And this is contrary to what the world might have you to believe. 
Many in the world would say there are a lot of different gospels or a lot of different forms of good news or a lot of ways to God or a lot of ways for you to have some kind of fulfilled spiritual life. And the way that you validate those things, some in Corinth would say, and many today would say, the way you validate what is truly of God is that the Christians who possess power and health and prosperity and blessing from a human perspective are the ones that have it right. Remember, Paul was denigrated among many of these Corinthians because he was the exact opposite of this. He was physically weak. He was not strong. He was persecuted. He was not popular and he was unattractive, not attractive. He did not have it all together from the worldly standards and he was not the picture of worldly success. Such an accusation is seen in 2 Corinthians 10.10. says, for they say his detractors, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And yet God's power was displayed in Paul through his preaching of the gospel. This gospel changes lives. Even though he was weak, God was strong. And this idea of weakness and strength and God's power being magnified as the vessels are particularly weak is displayed again and again and again throughout the book. In chapter four, verse seven, it says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that their surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. And later in chapter four, verse 16, we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this expression reaches its pinnacle in chapter 12 when Paul writes in verses nine and 10, he being God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, Paul writes, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so God's power is displayed in the life of Christians through our weakness. It's displayed in the simple proclamation of King Jesus paying the penalty for our sins on the cross, rising again from the dead, taking his rightful place on his throne as the ruler over all creation. And God, through those sequence of events, meets people and when they put their faith in him, God reconciles people to himself through this faith and only by his grace. And he says in chapter 13, in just a previous section, that when this happens, Christ is in you. When you put your faith in him, Christ is in you and you are in him. You are supernaturally united to him. And so now if all of the people who have their faith in Christ are united to him from all types of sin struggles, all types of ethnic backgrounds, all types of political stripes, all social classes, people on the different sides of 
conflict, even in the church, then you are necessarily united to those other brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Now that's the gospel foundation of the five commands that he is going to give. The gospel foundation of how a group of people who all believe in Jesus constitute together as a church, understand themselves in the light of God and the light of each other. How then should you act toward the person who is in the pew next to you, whether you like them or not, whether you have the same political party or not, or whether you come from the same neighborhood or not. And Paul gives five commands. This is what he says. These commands, one word commands with little explanation attached to them. But when you understand the gospel and you understand the weight of conflict and division among the family of God, you intuitively see how vital these commands are. Finally, brothers, rejoice. That command might feel a little bit odd for a group of people who get together regularly to sing praises to God, to rejoice. Why do you have to be commanded to rejoice? Well, sometimes when people are living in great tension, rejoicing is the last thing we want to do. And this is a command of focus and of faith. It's a command that has optimism and expectation attached to it. And the expectation is that a divided church in Corinth would be unified around the gospel as those in error and rebellion repent and are brought back into harmony with the rest of God's people. Paul longed for this for the Corinthians. And we, friends, rejoice the more and more and more that we see God take men and women and boys and girls who are living in rebellion to him and he brings them close and reconciles them to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that because there is nothing of greater consequence in this life There is nothing of greater joy in this life. There is nothing that will give you more happiness in this life than being in Christ and experiencing all the benefits of this human divine relationship and then seeing others being reconciled and found in Christ as well. This is greater than your greatest amount of career success. This is greater than any amount of financial prosperity. This is greater than the pleasures of sex. This is greater than seeing your kids succeed, whether that's in sports or extracurricular activities or in college or in their career. You right now have the opportunity to see and to know and to experience the living God of the universe in all of his power and be reconciled to him. And so we rejoice and we see that if that's true, then rejoicing is an attitude. It's a perception that has action attached to it. Rejoicing is based on our perception of what is real, of what is true. It's not based in our circumstances of what we feel. 
in any given moment. But when you step back and you think of what is seen and unseen, the Bible talks a lot about that. When you exercise ongoing faith, when you live out of a place of conviction, you begin to see the priorities, the hierarchy of priorities. You begin to understand propriety. You begin to recognize that what you see is not always the thing that is the most real. And what your circumstances present may only be temporary in their nature. And there are eternal realities that are infinitely more important. Paul demonstrates this in chapter six, when he says in verse 10, that he is always rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. And in chapter seven, verse nine, when he says he rejoiced because they felt a godly grief and they were grieved into repenting from their sin. And in chapter seven, verse 13 and 16, he rejoices because Titus was refreshed by them and he had confidence in them. And now, even in the midst of conflict, he rejoices because God is at work in saving sinners among them. And so the first command, Christian, for us is to rejoice. The second we see, stated right after it, is to aim for restoration. Conflict is hard. And I wonder if you've ever found it desirable to you in the midst of conflict to just avoid the other person altogether rather than to engage in the conflict. Because really there's mainly two types of people in this life. (laughs) The people who see conflict and they run right into the middle of it because they thrive on it. And if there's not conflict happening, they will very often create conflict so they can run into the middle of that conflict. That is some of you. And then Many of you would say, if there's conflict happening, I'm out. I just want to avoid that person and that issue and leave it alone. And then after a little bit of time and emotional distance, the scab builds up or the scar tissue builds up and we can pretend like nothing ever happened. But here's the thing. Paul says in the midst of this Christian community that we are to aim for restoration And that means neither diving right into the center of conflict unnecessarily, nor avoiding conflict altogether. To aim for restoration as the point of conflict is to say, we don't want the person that we're in conflict with to go down the street to another church and individually try to find God in the midst of a different community of people. And if they don't go, then maybe we'll go. That's not the way Christians live and function. If God is the God who gives us this incredible gospel of grace and this gospel is powerful enough to reconcile you, (laughs) even you, even you, even you, even you in all of your sin to the holy God of the universe who is completely other and perfect in every way, every attribute, every expression of who he is. If this gospel of grace is powerful enough to close that great chasm between you and him, then it is certainly powerful enough to reconcile one sinner to another. 
This might not be a surprise to some of you, and it will probably offend many of you, but I am no fan of cats. Now, I'm going to be clear about that. I don't mind your cat. And if I come over to your house, you don't have to lock your cat in the basement. I'll be nice to your cat, and your cat will probably like me as much as cats like anybody, which really isn't a whole lot. A couple years back, there was an article on a website called The Science of Us with what they called the 17 things we know about forgiveness. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of the study was how they noted who or what does not forgive. And the article summarized the research in this way. It's clearly and as plain as day. Cats never forgive. (laughs) Scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of the research has been done on primates like molten gorillas and chimps, and they often follow confrontation with friendly behavior like embracing or kissing. Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates like goats and hyenas. The only species that has so far failed to show any outward sign of reconciliation Domestic cats, which begs a whole nother question about Christianity and owning cats and all kinds of stuff that we're not going to get into. But here's the point. When it comes to forgiving others, don't be like a cat. Paul indicates this in Ephesians chapter four, when he talks about the life of a Christian community. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that manner, Christian? All with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father, of all who is over all and through all and in all. And if those things are true, the one that we are united to, and then we are necessarily united to each other, the goal is to aim for restoration. The third command, and we start to move quickly here, is to comfort one another. We see rejoice, aim for restoration, and now to comfort one another. The hurt was deep because the conflict was serious. When injury is present, the call is to not seek to further injure. It's to comfort one another. And you, each of you have an opportunity to do that for someone who is hurting or someone who is in conflict or intention. A gentle word, a hand on the shoulder, a note that says, I'm praying for you. Some perspective from some outside eyes that might not be so close or in the middle of the hurt. This is a great opportunity for Christians to care for each other. Paul illustrates this in chapter seven and verse six, when he says, the God who comforts the downcast comforted us. How did he do that? Through some sort of incredible, mysterious, supernatural appearance? No, he comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. 
rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another. And fourthly, he says to agree with one another. To agree with one another means that we have a certain amount of unity around what is most important. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity would mean that we all have to think exactly the same way and look the same way and act the same way. But unity provides for a level of diversity of thought and opinion, but requires the first order issues to be agreed upon in the life of a local congregation. God's word is the standard by which we seek that unity. You've been listening to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky. I want to bring Pastor Gatsky back in the studio here. Pastor, you know, every once in a while, it's good to revisit why we do what we do. And for those who may be new to the ministry, why produce this program? We believe wholeheartedly that God works through his word. And because we believe that, we believe that as Christians, we want to continue to consume that word over and over and over again over the course of our entire life because God uses it to grow us, to show us how to be faithful, to encourage us through hard times and encourage us in good times. And so we have a radio ministry to encourage Christians as they grow in their faith in Christ. And for someone who's not a Christian, to introduce them to Jesus Christ because we believe that he is indeed the great Lord and King who loves us dearly. And you know, we'd love to connect with you at abetterword.org. Go to abetterword.org to learn more about what we're doing and learn more about this ministry, our podcast, listen to past programs, and even consider a donation. Go today to abetterword.org. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.